You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by United Auto Workers, Local 249, and Teamsters, Joint Council 56. United Auto Workers, Local 249 members, building the best Ford trunks and vans in the world. And Teamsters, Joint Council 56, and our nine local unions represent 30,000 workers, retirees, and their families in western Missouri, Kansas, and Nebraska. We're proud to support the Heartland Labor Forum and their commitment to giving working families a voice in the Kansas City community. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. They help us every day, every week. But it's also Pledge Drive this week, and we're going to be asking for all you listeners out there to also support us just like our underwriters do. Maybe not so much. (laughs) On tonight's show... Longtime labor activist and writer Les Leopold has a new book called Wall Street's War on Workers, which delves into how mass layoffs and stock buybacks enrich shareholders at the expense of workers, their families, and communities. We'll talk to Les tonight on the show about solutions. Then we've got another show about what what legislators are cooking up for us this time in Topeka. We'll talk to John Nave of the Kansas AFL-CIO and Rabbi Modi Reber of Kansas Interfaith. That's tonight on the show. In the news, major breakthrough for Starbucks workers. Yes, Howard Schultz is gone. And UAW is going south. Our feature at the end of the show is Labor Song of the Month. It's a song by Odetta. And now for the news. The news from our side, February 29th, 2024. This story comes from the American Prospect via Payday Report. Starbucks and SEIU Workers United, the sponsoring union of Starbucks Workers United, have agreed to enter into talks about a framework for collective bargaining at the coffee giant. 
The agreement occurred as Starbucks claimed that it lost $11 billion as a result of boycotts over its founding CEO Howard Schultz's support for Israel's attack on Gaza. Starbucks had sued Star Starbucks Workers United after the union, which has won union elections at more than 400 Starbucks across the U.S., called for a boycott of Starbucks over its support of Israel's attack on Gaza. In response, the union countersued Starbucks. According to the prospects, Harold Meyerson, during mediation over the lawsuit, the new CEO of Starbucks, Laxman Nara Simhan, signaled that the company was interested in dropping its opposition to a union and settling issues as the company faced a massive boycott due to its support of the war in Gaza. In a joint statement, Starbucks and Starbucks Workers United, the two groups signaled their intent to continue talks around reaching an agreement about a framework for collective bargaining rights. The statement said, Workers United and Starbucks have agreed to begin discussions on a fundamental framework to achieve collective bargaining agreements for represented stores and partners. The resolution of litigation between the union and the company, including brand litigation and fair process for workers to organize. Quote, while there is plenty of work ahead, coming together to develop this framework is significant is a significant step forward and a clear demonstration of a shared commitment to work collaboratively with mutual respect, concluded the group's mutual statement. For nearly 15 years, the UAW has attempted to unionize workers at the Mercedes plant in Vance, Alabama. While the union has come within a few votes of union elections at Volkswagen and Chattanooga, the union has never held a union election in Alabama. Now we'll be seeing union representation elections in both VW and Mercedes. <coughs> this week, the UAW announced that most of Vance, Alabama, <coughs> auto workers had signed up to join the union. <coughs> in a statement, UAW said, a majority of our co-workers at Mercedes here in Alabama have signed our union cards and are ready to win our union and a better life with the UAW. We have taken this step lightly. For years, we've fallen further behind Mercedes while Mercedes has made billions. So far, over 10,000 non-union auto workers have signed union cards in an effort to join the UAW. On Tuesday, the UAW announced it was committing $40 million through 2026 in new organizing funds to support non-union auto workers who are organizing across the U.S. In another UAW story, in the Department of What a Difference a Change in Top Leadership Can Make, the UAW International Executive Board announced on Wednesday that the UAW will establish a new solidarity project to support auto workers in Mexico fighting for economic justice and improved working conditions. The project will provide resources to Mexican workers and independent unions in Mexico and aims to strengthen cross-border solidarity between U.S. and Mexican workers. For decades, corporations have taken advantage of inadequate trade laws to offshore thousands of U.S. manufacturing jobs to Mexico where worker wages and conditions have long been suppressed. 
Corporations use the threat of offshoring jobs as a cudgel to beat back worker discontent and organizing efforts in the U.S., said the statement. Mexican auto worker wages have fallen dramatically since the implementation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, in 1994. Under NAFTA, Mexico's automotive workforce has grown sevenfold, while wages, benefits, and working conditions continue to fall behind. The IFCLA in the St. Louis Interfaith Committee on Latin America put out a call to Missourians yesterday, alerting them that Missouri House of Representatives will soon vote on a combination of three bills, HB 2367, HB 2470, and HB 2535 that will affect undocumented individuals, most of whom are workers contributing to the economy, often doing jobs that no one else wants to do and alleviating current labor shortages. The bill could cause any undocumented people who experience even the slightest brush with the law to be charged with felony and then be subject to detention and deportation. If I, IFCLA asks, why should someone be charged with a felony and separated from their family for something as minor as failing to use their turn signal? This bill is a dangerous political ploy that criminalizes undocumented folks in our community and unconstitutionally attempts to regulate federal immigration law. They ask people to take action to stop the bill from moving forward and send an email to your representative to urge them to vote no. Not surprisingly, the Kansas legislature is considering a similar bill. It's SB 522, creating crime and unlawful entry into the state of Kansas and requiring notification of federal immigration authorities upon arrest for such offenses. You can write your House of Representatives in your state and tell them to protect our immigrant workers and defeat any bill that would criminalize them. The news tonight was read by Judy Ansel. Stephen Hill, and I'm Michael Savoie. And, and it's pitch time at KKFI. We come to you about three times a year. And I guess this, I don't know if this is our winter sp- uh, Yeah, this is the drive. winter one. This is the winter one. Yep. Okay, I'm Judy Ansel. With me here is Stephen Hill, our engineer, Michael oh. Savoie, and our guest, Rabbi Moti Reber, if he wants to join in, too. And another guest, John Nave, if you want to join in, too. Anyway, we're telling you why it is that we think that you need to pick up the phone and dial 888-931-0901 in order to make a pledge to KKFI and to the Heartland Labor Forum. We are the only labor show in Almost the entire Midwest. There's one in Chicago. There is one in Chicago. There's yeah. one in Urbana, Illinois. Urbana. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's uh, none anywhere else no, in the Midwest. Yeah, as far you, as you as have to go to the West Coast. You have to go to, well, <laughs> De- Denver? Denver? Denver, maybe. Yeah, yeah they're starting. Yeah, but, right. Yeah. Anyway, that number is 888-931-0901 uh, in order to make a pledge. Anybody else want to say anything? Well, you're speaking of shortages. You know, I... I'm increasingly aware of how limited 
our uh, resources are for news and information. I mean, there's, it's That's just right. so limited now to just a handful of corporate entities yeah. that are really uh, providing such information. And then there's no guarantee that it's not unbiased or even honest for that matter. That's right. Uh, so the value of community radio is increasingly uh, immeasurable. That's right. Yeah. You know, because uh, you can trust what you hear here. It's honest. It comes from the people, not from the corporate puppet uh, <laughs> operators. That's right. So, yeah. you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that we are here and we are a tremendous asset to the community. I say priceless, but I would also encourage everyone to, to appreciate that and support uh, KKFI. You can call at 888-931-0901. And if you, are, uh, uh, you like the internet better, just go to kkfi.org, and you will very, very easily find a place where you can pledge. And we need to get back to regular programming right now, um, but we'll be back. So stay tuned for Judy Morgan's interview with Leslie Leopold. Listen up, we've got a war zone here today right in our heartland And across the USA, these multinational bastards don't use tanks and guns, it's true But they've declared a war on us, my back, it's up to you Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers death of you and me, but we're not unarmed. Our weapons solidarity. Jim Beals and Karen Silkwood, the list goes on and on. With every year that passes, 60,000 more gone. Oh, it's a war on the workers. War on the workers. Oh, it's a war on the workers. War on the workers. Oh, it's a war on the workers. And it's time we started calling Good evening. I'm Judy Morgan, President Emerita of the American Federation of Teachers, Local 691, and former Missouri State Representative for the 24th District. The song you just heard was War on the Workers by Ann Feeney. Tonight, we'll talk to Les Leopold, author of a new book, Wall Street's War on Workers, How Mass Layoffs and Greed Are Destroying the Working Class and What to Do. After graduating from Oberlin College and Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs, Les co-founded the Labor Institute in 1976, a nonprofit organization that designs research and educational programs on occupational safety and health, the environment and economics for unions, worker centers, and community organizations. He continues to serve as executive director of the Labor Institute. Les has written a number of books, including The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor, The Life and Times of Tony Mazaki. The Mazaki story won the gold medal from Independent Publisher Book Awards for Best Biography in 2008. Les, welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and you're coming to us from New York? Uh, just outside of New York, a place called Montclair, New Jersey, 12 miles west of New York. Okay, great. Well, first off, what inspired you to write Wall Street's War on Workers? 
I'm a graduate of Oberlin College, and in the middle of the pandemic, the college decided to lay off 100-plus unionized workers. And a bunch of us alumni uh, got together to see if we could stop what we thought was an egregious uh, breach of trust. We did not succeed, but we raised a lot of money, uh, diverted money that was going to go to the college to the workers uh, to help them out a bit more. But I began to think about, well, why do institutions, why would a nonprofit institution do a mass layoff? And then I realized that mass layoffs were ubiquitous and that something dramatically had changed in the U.S. economy so that mass layoffs uh, uh, be the dominant feature in the lives of working people. Basically, I started to research this book, uh, put it together, dedicated uh, each chapter to one of the workers. Each chapter starts with a quotation from one of the laid off workers. In the process, I think I made two discoveries. You know, I don't want to have hubris about this, but I think they are profound. Okay. <laughs> that mass layoffs are really widespread and they are the dominant feature uh, of what's driving working class politics. And that connects to the second discovery, which is what's not driving working class politics is increasing racism, sexism, xenophobic, homophobic uh, attitudes. That we did these uh, careful studies and found that the working class, especially the white working class, is getting more liberal, not more illiberal over the last several decades. So when you see this working class anger, it is, in my opinion, and I think we've proven it, is directly connected to job instability. Uh, people, uh, we've asked this at steelworker classes and elsewhere, some people have gone through two, three, four mass layoffs, and it's mm -hmm. made them incredibly bitter. Unfortunately for uh, those of us who are Democrats, they've taken it out in the Democratic Party because they expect it better they expected some protection uh, from, from the Democrats. So uh, something really big changed in the economy. And what changed was the deregulation of Wall Street. This has led to uh, a catastrophe of job instability. And it spread not just, you know, used to be, you know, the Rust Belt, et cetera. It's everywhere now. In the last year, quarter more than a quarter of a million jobs in the high tech industry went under. Since the start of this year, another 40,000 jobs have, have uh, disappeared in, in high tech. And what, what's happened, and this is the scary part, we become uh, fatalistic about this. It, it's so widespread, we just believe that that's the way it is. And there's nothing we can do about it. And people think, oh, it's just technology. It's uh, globalization. You can't change that. And in fact, it's not that at all or very little of it's that. What it really is, once finance got deregulated in the early 1980s, they were able to do a couple of things that started destroy, destroying jobs. The first was uh, leverage buyouts. Uh, that's when a, a hedge fund or private equity company puts up about 10% of the money, borrows 90% more, buys a company, then sticks the company with all that debt. And then to pay for that debt, they start laying off workers. That's the first thing they do. And that really was frowned upon before 1980. Then in the deregulatory era, that was just let go. Leverage buyouts became uh, the thing. And it happens not just once or twice or a few hundred times, but thousands of times. It's hard to find a company that hasn't gone through a merger 
or uh, an acquisition, a leverage buyout. Each time that happens, there's a job instability. Every time it happens. And that job instability is the equivalent of basically sucking wealth out of the company and putting into into the uh, Wall Street uh, hedge funds and private equity institutions and their investors' pockets. The second thing that happened in 1982, they basically deregulated something called stock buybacks. Mm -hmm. That's when a company takes its own money, buys back its own shares, disappears them, and then the price of the share automatically goes up. There's fewer shares, the same revenue as the day before you, you bought them back, so every share is worth a little more. And this was basically illegal before 1982 uh, because it was considered exactly what it is, stock manipulation. And they felt, you know, you're not... The whole catechism of the free market economics that you learn in Economics 101 is that markets set the price. Uh, you know, in corporations uh, aren't permitted to set the price, but here they are setting the price. And uh, they thought that was one of the reasons that there was a crash in 1929. There was stock manipulation. Anyway, now companies, uh, there was a limit in 1982, before 1982, of 2% of corporate profits could go to stock buybacks. Now... It's 70%. Seven out of every $10 of corporate profits goes into stock buybacks because that enriches the so-called investors. They're not investors. They're stock sellers. They only get enriched when they sell. They immediately sell. And back before 1980, about 90% of pay was salary and bonuses. Now, 90% of pay is stock incentives. You know, you're a corporate executive. What's your goal in life? Unless you're a philanthropist, your goal in life is to produce money to do stock buybacks. So we found that uh, almost in every case where there are mass layoffs, not only might there be a merger acquisition or a leverage buyout in the background, but there's usually a stock buyback because it's a way to get money to do the stock buybacks, layoff workers. I know I was amazed when I read that that statistic you did about it used to be 2% stock buybacks and I had 70%. That's that's amazing. I want to talk a little bit about the personal end of this because in your book, you stated that losing your job is the seventh most stressful life event, ranked even more stressful than divorce or the death of a close, close friend. And you shared, like you said, at the beginning of each chapter, you shared quotes from some of the workers who had actually been laid off at Oberlin College in Ohio. So talk a little bit to our listeners about how losing their jobs affected them. And were you surprised by any of their reactions? I was not surprised by any of their reactions. As a kid, I grew up in a home where my dad experienced uh, several layoffs. And I can tell you, it, it sent shockwaves through our family. We were lucky. My mom was a bookkeeper and employed uh, all along the way. But it was devastating for my father. I mean, it, it made him feel uh, awful about who he was. And there was a, an air of depression uh, uh, through our home. So I, I didn't need to hear anybody else's stories. I could commiserate with what the Oberlin uh, workers went through. But here's where the personal becomes the political. It turns out that this experience of mass layoffs turns people away from what we might call progressive politics. I can't tell you how many people end up saying, I'm totally disappointed in uh, the support we got from uh, the Democratic Party and elected officials. They should come to our defense. They don't. All they care about are wealthy people and, and so on and so forth. And what we did 
was we tried to test that idea out more statistically. This, so we found that in the blue wall states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the counties that had increasing mass layoff rates ended up having decreasing votes for the Democratic Party. Yes. And this was consistent across all three states. Now, a lot of those counties were rural. They tended to be less educated uh, and, uh, and poorer and uh, uh, tended to be whiter. Uh, but in a way, that the, the race is irrelevant because the experience of mass layoff is so profound, uh, so devastating. Think about this. You're in a rural county in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and a factory that's employing, employing a thousand people goes leaves either because you know stock buyback leverage buyout whatever happened that did it even a trade deal is usually triggered to so that it can create money for stock buybacks but anyway it happens now there's a thousand people employed in a fairly low density uh, county all thousand people are running around looking for jobs your friends and neighbors are competing with you to find jobs where the dollar store the local prison mm -hmm. you know it's 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 incredibly depressing. Survey after survey, focus group after focus group done all over the country, people think the system is rigged against them. They're struggling while the wealthy, the Wall Streeters are, are surviving. So the personal story for me grew into the political story. I started with what happened to these Opal and workers, which reminded what they were saying was what I heard when I was a kid. It grew into this uh, investigation uh, Part of it is statistical investigation because we had to prove two things. We had to prove that mass layoffs may actually make a difference, that people are really angry about it and changes their politics. We heard many people say to us, you know, I used to be a Democrat and I've given up on them because of the mass layoffs. So we had to prove that, and which we did. The second thing we had to show was that there wasn't a second cause, which was that people were getting angry at the Democrats because they were too woke. That's not why they're angry. Okay. Let me interject here, though. Do, do they think that the Republicans would have done more for them, or is it just they they just excellent, got mad? Excellent, excellent question. Why would they think that the Republicans would do better? I think most of them just check out of politics, right? They just don't vote. They just don't vote. If a democracy can't provide stable employment for its work for its people, they are going to give up on democracy. We have a lot of historical evidence on that. I mean, democracy is precious, but if I'm not eating and I can't feed my family and I feel like crap the way my father felt when he was tossed out, uh, was lucky with the 1960s, there were new jobs forming it, uh, mm -hmm. and he could, you know, in, in his craft and he could find mm -hmm. another one relatively quickly. But being tossed out, you know, democracy doesn't mean that much to you if you're going from mass layoff to mass layoff. You want a state you you can't live in this society without stable employment what are you supposed to do mm -hmm. you go live in a car and become homeless you can't feed your kids properly what do you think your kids think of you when you you're you're feeling so down and out this is a big deal politically and it's not being treated as a big deal you know it's wonderful that the, uh, the uh, infrastructure acts and the chips acts and, and and low unemployment these are all great things but they're creating jobs usually down the road for somebody else. A plant goes down in Western Pennsylvania, a new plant gets built in Eastern Pennsylvania. You're just telling people, well, if you want that job, you got to move, you got to rip up your life, go someplace mm -hmm. else, get mm -hmm. out of school. I mean, this is, you know, it's very, very hard. You got to fight to keep the jobs from disappearing. Yes, they're uh, slow it down, 
there can be a mu much less painful transition as people, you know, uh, 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 in, I'll tell you one last story about here that shows okay. that we've done. Siemens Energy, uh, which was part of Siemens International, which has 400,000 employees. Siemens Energy has 90,000 employees. They decide to shut down 7,000, uh, get rid of 7,000 jobs worldwide. Uh, they're based in Germany. Uh, and 1,700 in the United States, uh, 3,000 plus in Germany. Well, in the United States, they're, they're getting three quarters of a million dollars from the federal government, and they shut down several plants, all, uh, just shut them down. In Germany, uh, have a, what's called co-determination. Half the board of directors mm. are worker union representatives, mm. and they fought this, and they demanded investigation. It took a couple of years for the investigations to get done. By then, several people... Uh, had, you know, lots of people had retired. And then they got the company there to commit to no forced layoffs. They'd have to, people would have to voluntarily agree to leave, which meant the company had to uh, put up money for them uh, to bribe them to leave. And on top of that, the six facilities that were, were going to go down, the company agreed to put something else in those plants so that the local communities wouldn't suffer. Nothing was done to stop the mass layoff. So it can be done. Siemens certainly mm -hmm. could all 1,700 at work if government came to the rescue of workers. And it better do that soon because, you know, why not have to tell the, your listeners, things aren't looking so hot. Uh, and this is one of the main reasons. I'm not saying the only reason. So, and I know United States, our, our membership is, has dwindled over the years. So what, what part, for the last question, what part do you think labor unions play in this war on workers? What can labor unions do to help with this mass layoff and war on workers? Great question. I think they are the heart and soul of our future. It's because uh, unions have a dues paying base. They don't have to rely on, on begging anybody else for money. They have, uh, they have the ability to work, they're showing now, especially led by the United Mine Workers, excuse me, the United Auto Workers and several mm -hmm. other unions, communication workers, Teamsters, uh, showing the ability to organize uh, unorganized workers. That's key. The next step is they need to create some kind of political umbrella where anybody can join to try to fight for uh, new legislation that stops mass layoffs. These stock buybacks should be outlawed. Leverage buyout should be outlawed. These were things that the Democrats put on their agenda back in the in the mid 1980s. These are things that can be done, but we're going to need a mass political base, and and other community groups then could join in. But everybody doing their own thing right now is not working. We need an organization that looks like the populist organization of the 1880s and 1890s. You know, back then they fielded. 6,000 educators that went around the country explaining how the economy worked and building up a mass base, which ended up changing America. They were the fighters against the uh, robber barons in the, in the Gilded Age. And that, that led, uh, basically what we saw in the New Deal was being put together by the populace you know, 20, 30, 40 years earlier. We've got, we need something like that. We don't have it now. And I'm hoping, uh, I have, I've got a lot of hope for what the UAW and the communication mm -hmm. workers and others are doing right now, because they're they're speaking for the class as a whole, not just for their own members. And I think working people are dying to hear something like that. 
who's going to go out there and fight for me and protect me, even if I'm not in a union? And I, I think the trade union movement is the heart and soul of that uh, in the in the public sector as well. But I, it really needs to happen soon. Uh Hope I live long enough to see. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I do know another positive note is the public does seem to be more supportive of unions and was very supportive of the UAW strike, which obviously Sean Fain did a great job of leading that. I'm Judy Morgan in the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank you so much. Leslie Apold, author of Wall Street's War on Workers, How Mass Layoffs and Greed Are Destroying the Working Class and What to Do. It's an informative interesting and insightful look at mass layoffs and solutions to them. Les, we appreciate you spending time with us this evening. Again, thank you so much for having me. KKFI thanks Meshuggah Bagels for feeding our volunteers during this fun drive. Meshuggah Bagels uses a secret recipe to bring the taste of New York to Kansas City. Meshuggah has three locations in the metro, including 1208 West 39th Street in Midtown. Find out more on the web at meshuggahbagels.com. That's M-E-S-H-U-G-G-A-H-B-A-G-E-L-S dot com. And we thank them for their support. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stay here. Yellow light. Hey, did, did you know that KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City's community radio, is not just another radio station? Really? What sets KKFI apart? Well, their programming. KKFI's programming is more widely diverse than any other radio station or TV station within hundreds of miles. Their dedication to serving our collective communities is, well, it's unparalleled. We have shows for the LGBTQIA community, nature voices, women's issues, justice and prison population, environmental discussions, and so much more like R&B. Well, I love that too. And it's all made possible by our incredible volunteers who work tirelessly to bring you this vital content. Show your appreciation for their hard work and support KKFI by making a donation at kkfi.org or you can call us at 888-931-0901. Let's keep the diversity of our airwaves alive. The light's green now. Let's go. on the world and we're here working on the world That's but right. we're also working on kkfi because it's pledge week and if you like what we're doing here please give us a call at 888-931-0901 and make a pledge and if you don't want to call us you can get online and do it at kkfi.org 
you know we don't have to we don't come all the time to you and ask for money but we do it um, at pledge drives because that's how we survive because we don't have any corporations funding us we're completely independent and that means we get it right of course <laughs> so I want to introduce our guests for this segment of the show um, John Nave is executive vice president of the Kansas AFL-CIO he has been in that position when he uh, since he was elected in January of 2018 and he comes out of the United Steelworkers Local 307 that's the Goodyear plant so you must have been a tire worker John. I, yeah I worked in quality quality uh, okay control, how, so. how many years did you work at Goodyear uh, about eight years eight years mm -hmm. okay yes and then you uh, became a um, labor politician yes right? they they called me and asked me to uh to consider being in this position and uh, i said uh well absolutely i mean i've been in politics for a very long time have you yes. okay well um and it's a good position unfortunately you have to spend every day in the kansas legislature right yes it's yeah. our it's my uh domain okay all right well we'll talk about that in a minute and also with us is rabbi modi reber who is the executive director of Kansas Interfaith, which is an organization that's been around in its current form since 2016. And uh, Modi has been a rabbi for 20 years. And I would add that, you know, like if, uh, do you have to be Jewish to get you to do a wedding, Modi? Uh, we could talk. Oh, oh, well, we could talk, okay. He also, <laughs> he also does funerals, right? Yeah, you, okay. don't have to be, you don't have to be Jewish for me to do your funeral. Really? You just have to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good idea. Okay. Well, thank you and welcome to the show. So we're going to talk about what's cooking in the Kansas legislature. Actually, a couple weeks ago, we did the Missouri legislature, and I have to say that it was a real toxic stew that they were cooking up. I don't know. How's Kansas? Is it bad this year? Is it less bad? What is it? Well, we started off the year. <clears throat> I'm excited about this first part of the session. Um, you know, labor's been, we've been at a fight for a very long time and we uh, weren't lucky to always get a hearing that we wanted or uh, get a bill that we wanted. You know, they was anti-labor. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I've been on the show before and talked about that, yeah. about a, a change in trying to build relationships with the elected officials and get them to know who labor is. And so these last three sessions it has taken a better road for labor and uh, in particular a couple of a bill that we've been pushing pretty heavily we have almost come to the finish line with a complete bill that will go to the governor's decks here in three okay, or four what's weeks the bill? Senate, Number, Senate, name? Senate bill um, 430 it's a, a complete uh, overhaul of the uh, workers compensation a and complete overhaul yes Yes. Well, I know the Kansas workers, workers' compensation law sucks, it, right? We, we the were current one. well, yeah. The current one, the current law legislation is one of the worst. We have the worst in the country, uh -huh. and I think um, some of the elected officials got tired of being called the worst, and put it mildly. They said, "Is something has to be done," and so uh, the work had started and the conversation started. We we started meeting and started building relationships. Some of my colleagues that work in supporters of this bill, we worked tirelessly for the last three sessions. And this year, we, uh, last end of last year, we got um, a uh, 
hearing on it, which nobody said we would get. We got the hearing at the very last day or second to the last day of the session. Which is a miracle, right? Yes, it's just a miracle. I, I believe, I'm a faithful man. I believe in faith. Huh. So anyway, the consensus was that they were going to work all over the summertime, and so that's what happened. We got so. Uh, tell me specifically, what are some of the changes? Well, you know, you know, currently uh, the current law for a death benefit is three hundred thousand. We they moved that in this bill to five hundred thousand. Uh, perm total disability is one hundred and fifty five thousand. No worker could withstand that, whether you're rich, poor, or whatever. Middle class, it, it affects everybody. So, if you're permanently disabled on the job. All you get for your life is one hundred fifty-five. From the cap on the current. cap is one hundred fifty-five. Okay, what 000. is that going to go up to? Uh, it's going to go to uh, four hundred thousand. Okay, that's still not so, much. But yeah, but it's better. It's a, yeah, <laughs> and and like I said, the the death benefits is five hundred thousand. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's it's not we wanted a, a lifetime a lifetime benefit until age sixty-five. But you know, the whole bill is about give and take. Mm-hmm. That we got. We didn't get everything we wanted. They didn't get everything we wanted. But what I do admire about everybody around that table, they work through the sticking points. Kind of reminds me of labor and negotiations. When you come across the table and you say, okay, yeah. we can move this out, move this around. So we, that's the way it worked out. So good. All right. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to hoping that that's going to pass. So it hasn't passed either house yet? Uh, yes. Well, it, it went in the House Committee, Commerce Committee, and uh, it passed through the committee pretty fast oh. and then i the vice chair uh, made a motion to move con, uh in uh, cons, uh the move it through the system quickly mm-hmm. and get it to the house floor um and so what they did was they took the vote and it passed nobody okay. objected so now it's in the senate it'll no it's not yet it'll oh. go to the house on the floor on tuesday no later than wednesday uh-huh. and they'll it should be okay okay well, we'll be it passed attention. the senate 40 to zero. Oh. So, Terrific. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, let me switch to you, Modi. Um, you want to talk about the flat tax that is no more or the Medicaid expansion that we hope will be? Yeah, my uh, my reports aren't as happy as John's. Um, you know, the two things that uh, legislative leadership seemed to be most concerned about this year, uh, one was a, a tax bill, as you mentioned, that would have changed Kansas's graduated income tax to a flat tax, um, it would have. Uh, been, uh, there was other. There were other benefits in it, like no grocery tax, right? L- lowering the, speeding up the elimination of the sales of the mm-hmm. sales tax on groceries. Also, a um, a, a rise in the uh, standard deduction. Um, most of the benefits. Uh, the leadership was very was waving around the benefits of this bill for the middle class, but most of the benefits came from the pieces that were not the tax cut, that were that were the ancillary the raising the raising the um eliminating the 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 tax on groceries or uh what i mentioned before about um raising the standard deduction the income tax part would have really benefited the highest income earners and we were we were yeah i heard charles coke was going to get eight hundred thousand dollars eight hundred twenty seven thousand yeah yeah eight hundred twenty seven thousand so that's that's a good you know it's it's a good investment for what he's paid for Mm -hmm. for legislators um, and fortunately, the governor uh, vetoed it, as she's been pretty strong, saying that she would not support a flat tax. Um, and well, they were, wouldn't it wouldn't it bankrupt the government within a few years? Uh, a couple of things could could really have a, a devastating effect, and there's another one I'll mention in a okay. second. But uh, they 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 were not able to override the veto, 
And one of they, even though they, even though um, Republicans and conservatives have a veto-proof majority, they haven't always been able to use it. Sometimes they have been, but sometimes they haven't been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other place where uh, they haven't been able to use it is on the question of uh, school vouchers, privatization of public schools, which is something that Kansas Interfaith Action or KIFA um, works very, you know, works with our coalition partners around. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at Arizona, actually, right now, if you're sitting at home doing this, you could Google Arizona plus flat tax plus vouchers, and you'll see that they passed, Arizona passed the bills that Kansas right-wingers want to pass, and it blew a massive hole in their budget mm-hmm. um, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. So Governor Kelly obviously doesn't want that. So she's pretty been pretty strong against uh, th- both of those things. So there must have been some Republican heroes on this one. There have been on the on the on the tax bill. There were a couple of senators uh, who it actually got it actually failed in the House. Yes. Right. Even though we thought that it was going to end up failing in the Senate, it ended up fa- failing to so override in the House. So it never went to the Senate. Right? It never went back to the Senate. So the, uh, who were the reps on the Republican side who? Oh gosh, now I have to go look it up. You don't remember? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, oh Jacobs is a is a conservative uh, Garber Garber and uh, and Younger and Schreiber are both people who have been mod- like the last remaining moderates. I see. And then a couple of conservatives joined it also, hmm. and they and they so it failed by a bunch. Yeah, they only need a cut. Co- we they they only need one or two um, to lose one or two votes for a veto to be sustained. Right. It's a very close margin. Uh, and in vouchers, uh, last year we had we had quite a number of vou- uh, voucher bills attempts to take public money and put it into private education, and um, more people voted against that. More rural Republicans, particularly, are ve- and you're seeing that actually around the the region. Uh, I think Idaho also, which Idaho is not even a purple state, um, and they were not able to pass a voucher bill because they can see how much how much money it takes out of public education. Public education is still pretty popular, despite multiple attempts to throw it into disrepute or to or to eliminate it. Well, I suppose you know if or if you live in, in rural areas, the only education available is public right. education. Yeah, I mean, they, so, what what they want to do is they want to enable people to be able to spend it on homeschooling, which is something that you could do in a rural area, even though it, you know there's no there's no uh, private schools or parochial schools in rural right. areas. But you could do a desktop sort of Christian Christian academy, and then take state money. And rural and rural people know that it only takes a couple of kids. The way this the way that education is funded in Kansas, it only takes a couple of kids leaving the rural school district for it to really go into ruins in a sense, yeah. uh, because it's hard. It makes it hard to right. even even maintain. Is that, that even constitutional? And the, the, uh, if they pass something like it, could be tested. Well, we our Supreme Court in Kansas, as you as you will well remember, Judy um, was the one who basically sank the Brownback experiment by saying they were underfunding public schools. Right. So that was that's one of the reasons why the people who like tax breaks want to want to damage public schools right. because so much of the budget goes to public schools. But I also wonder whether funding. Religious schools is constitutional because of the separation of church and state. Well, that's a quaint idea, Judy, which we used to have in this country, but it doesn't really exist anymore. And they, if what the Supreme Court has found is that if you fund uh, any, uh, if you fund, if you put, pu- if you put public money into private schools, you have to also fund religious education. You can't discriminate between secular private schools and 
religious schools. Yeah. So one of the the way that we keep that from happening is by not funding private schools at all, which is really Okay, we only have a couple minutes left. So either of you, voting rights, anything happening here? They're always going to be continue. Our, you know, our, that's one of our coalition battles is to make sure voting rights are, are sacred and the education of our communities across the state. They keep putting these bills and restrictions, and I, uh, and and so we have to continue to educate our um, our our members and our community all across the state. People got to wake up to see and pay attention about voting rights. Is there any specific legislation? There's a bill that uh, bills that we've seen before to either eliminate drop boxes or to restrict access to drop boxes. One that we've that we've dealt with quite a quite a number of times over the past and again this year is a bill that would eliminate a 3-day grace period on the return of mail ballots. Right. Um, so they would have to be in the office by 7 p.m. on Election Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been able to stave that off for the last couple of years, and so far this year also we've been able to stave it off. You know, we've actually been able to say that, um, to say what John's been saying, which is that um, you know there there is no problem with voting. There is there hasn't been a problem with voting. Kansas voting vote, votes are secure. Uh, convenience and and the ability of people to be able to vote off of working hours is super important. And, and fortunately, we have a Secretary of State, even though he's, um, you know, we have a, a, a conservative Secretary of State, but he's been great at his job and he's been very supportive of maintaining voting rights. And, and so far, we've been able to keep them from doing anything. Absolutely. They're, you know, he's said, hey, our voting methods are, are fine. Right. So. so the main thing is for people to vote, right? Vote, pay attention. Yeah, pay attention, get yes. informed. Any last words? Yeah, I also want to point out that today was actually another uh, set of anti-trans bills. Um, so this one, they, they passed a number of, as you, as you know, around the country, there's right. been efforts to really mm-hmm. uh, uh, oppress, essentially, the trans, transgender community. And there's a bill today that would, have, that, that would um, make it illegal for anyone to do any gender-affirming care on anyone under the age of 18. And that's, oh my gosh. And that's uh, psychiatrists, therapists. Do you have a bill number? Uh, yes, uh, uh, 2371. And yes, tw- Senator. It's, it's oh. HB. HB 2371. 2371 and 2372. Let me make sure I'm giving you the right number. Um, they were they were heard in the, ed- in, the health, in the health committees today. Okay. Um, one in the Senate and one in the House. And uh, we expect them to um, we expect them to, to, to move on those. Okay. Um, it's still pretty popular in um, amongst far, the far right uh, oppressing. Okay. LGBT well, we're people. out of town, but uh, out of time. Time, but uh, uh, you know, if you're listening out there and you're in Kansas, you know, you can always call your state reps and your state senators and tell them what you like and what you don't like, and that's really important. KansasInterfaithAction.org. Okay, you can find a lot of that stuff at Kansas. Find a lot of information at that. Okay, and that's KIFA, Kansas Interfaith Action. We've been talking to Modi Reber, and we've been talking to John Nave from the Kansas AFL-CIO. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. I'll be, I love coming talking to the show and giving well, information we'll to again. our members all across yeah. the state. Thanks, Judy. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And stay tuned for Labor Song of the Month. I'm Mark Galis, here with our occasional feature, Labor Song of the Month. As Black History Month draws to a close and Women's History Month begins, tonight we'll bridge the gap and hear Take This Hammer by Odetta. 
Take This Hammer has its origins in the post-Civil War era, when forced laborers, mostly African Americans, were leased to work in the fields, in the mines, and on the railroad. The workers would often sing songs to pass the time, and to bring light to their situations and conditions. The same was true for prison gangs, who often sang while doing backbreaking manual labor. Take This Hammer most likely began as a variation of The Ballad of John Henry and Nine Pound Hammer, two classic working songs. In 1940, Lead Belly recorded and released Take This Hammer, the first known commercial version of the song. Lead Belly was no stranger to the song, having served time at the brutal Angola prison farm in Louisiana. The song has been recorded dozens of times by artists as diverse as Johnny Cash, John Prine, Taj Mahal, and even the Beatles. Odetta Holmes was one of the most influential singers of the 20th century, inspiring artists from Mavis Staples to Bob Dylan to Janis Joplin. She counted Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks as fans. Odetta was called the voice of the civil rights movement and the queen of American folk music. She got her start in musical theater in the 1940s, then moved on to the folk music clubs in New York and San Francisco in the 1950s. Her musical career spanned six decades, recording and touring up until her death in 2008 at the age of 77. From her 1957 album, From the Gate of Horn, here's Odetta with Take This Hammer.
You two do it. All right, we're coming into the top of the hour. I want to thank everybody for uh, bringing in donations. Our uh, donation champion, Judy Ansel, at $150. Thank you very much, Judy, wherever you are. Uh, before, uh, Mike, Michael Savoy talked about uh, there being shortages, uh, but we have no shortage of swag. Your pledge to the community radio uh, can get you a T-shirt or a trucker hat or one-hour DJ certificate, and you too can be on the radio. And they have women's cut T-shirts. Women's cut, yes. Absolutely. Yes, We're I like moving those. on up. There's no question yeah, about right. it. So what do you have to do to get one of those? Well, You have to be shapely. <laughs> <laughs> or you call the station at one eight 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 nine three one zero nine zero one, or go to kkfi.org and but you have to pledge a certain amount you do have to pledge a certain amount i think it's 120 it's 120 one time yes or ten dollars a month yes you know and i might say that that is uh that's a very inexpensive price for what you get with KKFI. Uh, Which get, is more than a t-shirt. Absolutely. More than a t-shirt. It's, yeah. more, it's more than a, a latte. It's, you know, it's... <laughs> you know, we don't have problems. a latte machine here. Yeah, what do you mean? No, no, I know. <laughs> we, we, no, no, truly, though, this is one of the most valuable assets this community has. Absolutely. So absolutely. Think that. of all the great music here that's on KKFI. Every day of the week. Aside it's from, a good program. You know, get, getting, yeah. the getting diversity skinny program. on what's in the legislature, which you all need to know, right? That's right. Where yeah. else are you going to get that locally? Uh, you get it here. 888-931-0901. Call us and make a pledge. Support KKFI. Or go online. Yeah. If, you don't, do it, if, if you don't do it, I don't know who will. That's right. It's up to the community. It's your radio station, Stephen, are we out of time? Yeah, we're out of time. All right, so please tune in next week. Uh, we're going to have a show about the history of the Independent Federation of Flight Attendants and the Flight Attendant Rebellion. And this is going to be the history of the flight attendants at TWA and members of IFA, the Independent Federation of Flight Attendants. It's a really exciting and inspirational story. And, of course, we're also going to have more Pledge Drive. Exciting. Yay. Thanks to Stephen Hill, who's our engineer tonight, and to Michael Savoir, who is here helping us pitch. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network of over 200 labor shows and radio shows and podcasts from around the U.S. and the world. Find them at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. And stay tuned for From Arc to Microchip. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that